0: Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. Viral videos, trending Twitter photos, and all sorts of other internet clickbait have become a daily part of our lives. And one of the most popular genres of viral content is cat videos. So this week on the program, we'll hear two conversations about the Internet and cats. In the second half of the program, we'll hear a conversation with Mike Burdovsky. Burdovsky is a recording studio engineer and the owner of Bloomington's Russian Recordings. He's also the owner of one of the Internet's most famous felines, Lil' Bub. WFIU's John Bailey spoke with Burdovsky about his recording career and how his cat, Lil' Bub, changed his life. But first, we'll hear a conversation with IU professor and media researcher Jessica Gall Myrick. Myrick recently published an article exploring how viral content, specifically cat videos, affect our mood and productivity. Gina Asher spoke with Myrick earlier this year.
1: Our guest today is researcher Jessica Gall Myrick who is on the faculty at the Indiana University Media School. She studies media psychology, or the psychology of how we interpret and respond to media. Welcome, Professor Myrick. Thank you. One of your more recent studies made a lot of people feel much better about one of those internet-based guilty pleasures, (laughs) that is, watching videos of pets doing sweet and silly things. Specifically, you studied the psychology and the effects of cat videos, which are more popular than funny dog or even cute kid videos. What did you find out about those of us who can't get enough of Grumpy Cat and Little Bub? (laughs) Well, there are a lot
2: of you. Uh, (laughs) There are more than 2 million cat videos online, and they've been viewed more than 26 billion times. So it's a really prominent genre. and That's part of the reason I was attracted to study it. But what I did was a survey, an online survey, and uh, I was fortunate to have Lil Bub's owner uh, share the link to my survey. So that helped me get a lot of participants. And I asked people about their background, uh, their personality traits, etc. And then I asked them to report some Uh, figures back to me about their most recent time viewing a cat video online. And what I found was that this experience makes people in general happier. It makes them more content. People reported feeling even more energized after watching a cat video than they did before. Uh, I found that some people do, in fact, watch cat videos to procrastinate. Not a surprising finding. But what I was really interested in was the fact that previous research has shown that procrastination, using media as a way to procrastinate, is tied to feelings of guilt. You binge on Netflix instead of doing your homework and then you feel guilty about it. But because cat videos seem to make people happy, I wanted to see if that happiness could sort of counteract the guilt. And that's pretty much what I found for people who are specifically watching cat videos as a form of procrastination. If they really got a lot of joy from the cat video that can override their guilt to the point where they still report the media experience as an enjoyable, worthwhile one. But if the cat video was just sort of so-so, you know, the cat wasn't very funny or wasn't very cute, then they're still going to feel guilty for procrastinating. So my area of research really looks at the emotional ramifications of media, and that's why I was drawn to cat videos. And so and that's also why I looked at this interplay between guilt and happiness as part of the cat entertainment experience.
1: Did you find, too, that watching a cat video, because maybe it makes me happier, when I do return to work, I'm more productive or I am in a different frame of mind? I mean, what's the emotional response when I do go back to the task at hand?
2: I did not study that specifically and actually think that is an area we need to go with this type of research because it's so easy for us now with our smartphones in our pocket or you know having multiple tabs open on our computer it keeps switching back and forth between entertainment content and our work or entertainment content and news. So there are theories about emotional flow, emotional contagion, also called emotional regulation about how the way we feel does impact the way we consume the next bit of information, and also the way our feelings sort of change as we get different stimuli and go about the day. So uh, if you do feel more energized and happy after watching a cat video, it could serve as a resource potentially for doing harder tasks afterward, but we really
1: don't know yet. So the survey itself was all online, and these were volunteers, so... We can probably assume that some of them were doing the survey online at work, (laughs) maybe between cat videos. Mm. Give us an example of some of the things you were asking. Sure. It was an online survey. I decided I wanted to meet cat
2: video watchers where they are. And that is um, online. And one of the reasons I did this particular project was I couldn't find any other research on it, any other empirical data on the psychology of cat videos. So uh, it was really an exploratory study. And I was trying to get as wide a swath of people and types of information as I could. So I asked people how often they watched cat videos. The average respondent watched them
1: daily. (laughs) Thank you. The <laughs> cat uh, <laughs> I suppose you're not going to respond to the survey if you're not already a fan right. of videos. This is definitely, yeah, I was looking
2: for people <laughs> to liked cat videos, a purpose of samples, what we call it. Um, not necessarily generalizable to every single internet user, but I had nearly 7,000 participants. So. And they were from all over. Yeah, they're from all over the US. And uh, so I asked people how often they watched them. I asked if they posted their own cat videos. I asked if they also watched dog or other animal related videos. I asked if they actually, Owned a cat. Uh, the average respondent in my survey owned 2.4 cats. <laughs> <laughs> so we see a correlation between real life and media life, and that's that's not too surprising. But it's, I think it's interesting. I asked about some other personality traits, So one thing I found was that um, people who watch more cat videos are more likely to be shy. Which is kind of interesting because that's sort of a trait you might associate with, again, with in real life. or the cat itself. <laughs> the cat itself, yeah. It's not super social. I've read stories about why do people like cat videos, just anecdotal ones in the news. And one person said that the Internet is like the dog park for cats. So you can show other people your cat online. You can't really do that right. in real life without right. probably getting clawed <laughs> or both you and the cat being miserable. So it's actually a way to sort of show off your cat, um, show that you're a cat person. There's, I think there's so definitely a social identity aspect of this, that you're an animal person, that you like pets, etc., So yeah, there was that link between shyness, between owning an actual cat and watching more cat videos. I also found that people who just in general spent more time online were more likely to watch more cat videos. And that makes sense too. If you think about those numbers I uh, refer to, there are so many cat videos out there and they just keep (laughs) growing with the ease of recording video and even taking photos and making animated GIFs. If you're spending a lot of time online, you're sort of bound to run into one. And I asked people, were you purposely seeking out a cat video? Think back to the last time you watched one. And 75% of the people in my survey said no. Wow. I didn't go online just to look at a cat video. It just popped up, uh, basically. So they're part of our media diet. Even if you don't like cats, you're going to run into cat videos.
1: Are they mostly showing up? uh, Did people report on social media or Perhaps they were on YouTube for something else, and that was one of the options. I mean, was that right. the milieu of, of turning these up if you weren't going out to look for them? Yeah, I,
2: I asked people where they were encountering these, and social media was definitely the most popular response, um, Facebook and YouTube. But also there are websites dedicated to cute cat images and videos. ICANN has Cheeseburger. Yes. It's a very popular one cuteoverload.com is another popular one. There are threads on Reddit for cat videos. That's also you know social media. What really surprised you about the results that you netted from this? I think one of the most surprising things was that people weren't actively looking for them, although they sort of encountered it. But another thing that I thought was really interesting was when I asked people to recall their most recent time viewing a cat video, 75% said that they interacted with that content by liking it or favoring it it depending on the platform they were on. Um, So this is a social experience. People are actually connecting with each other via their pets or other people's pets. Um, 50%, I actually think it was 54% reported they shared the cat video with someone else. And a quarter of them said they commented on it. So this is a way for people to connect with each other through animals. It's not just some weird fascination with cats, or it's not just a complete waste of time, like some people might say. It's actually serving some other functions for Internet
1: users. Just so that our listeners know, this was a credible study. (laughs) The title of this was Emotion Regulation, Procrastination, and Watching Cat Videos Online. Who Watches Internet Cats? Why and to What Effect? And it was published in a peer-reviewed academic journal, Computers in Human Behavior. But news of this immediately began to ricochet around social media. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It generated so much buzz that news organizations from at least 30 countries and counting have contacted you for interviews. They wrote about your study. Uh, They passed it along on their own social media streams. These included all three network morning shows and a lot of other national TV and radio stations, numerous magazines and websites. You even presented your work at Harvard's Ig Nobel Awards. And that, as everybody may know, honors the improbable research that makes people laugh and then think. And the study was even mentioned in the Ziggy comic strip. (laughs) So not only were you inundated by requests, but the story seemed to take on a life of its own on social media. Tell us about some of the ways that social media latched on to this. Sure. So it really did hit big. Uh,
2: And I spent days and weeks even just doing interview after interview and people were posting on my Facebook while my social media pages. Hey, I heard you on NPR. I heard you um, on this channel. I saw the study. Uh, So I think it was It's sort of one of those good news, feel good things that people like because it validates something they're already doing. A lot of people are already watching cat videos and they can say, ah, science is behind it. Of course, as a social scientist, it's not that simple. This is an exploratory study with a non-generalizable sample yada, yada, yada. Um, and a lot of news outlets sort of oversimplified the results. But that's the nature of science communication in general. But it was extremely popular. I, I lost my voice on I think the <laughs> third day of interviews and had to uh, you know, go get throat lozenges and a ton of water just to keep going. I did interviews with more than Fifty Canadian radio stations for whatever Canada reason. And yeah, cats. the hmm. Canadian radio um,
1: folks were really into it. <laughs> did they get the message right? In other words, this is one of your areas too: is how do you mm-hmm. communicate certain kinds of media messages? So you're on the other side of that now. Yeah. And did they all present the study factually? Did anybody take it and kind of run with it to another topic?
2: The outlets where I spoke to a reporter, I thought, did a really good job. A lot of people covered the story based on just the press release and sometimes occasionally uh, made it a little more than it actually was. Again, it was a self-report survey of people who already identified as watching cat videos. And I talk in the academic journal article that this might be an avenue for digital pet therapy. For people who are allergic to pets or can't afford a pet, you could have them watch a cat video and um, get an emotional boost, etc. But we really need to research that. So that's the social science me speaking. But then other people would say, oh, if you watch cat videos, you'll be super productive and you'll never be depressed. Right. Some clickbait was born. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> lots of clickbait. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's natural with any story. I try to get people to actually look at the article. I worked really hard, even though it is published in an academic outlet, that if you had no training in social science, I still think you could read it. Other than the statistics, that would be a little tricky, but you could read most of the rest of it and sort of understand why this is important, why it adds to our understanding
1: of media use and media psychology. Did it matter if the video was about a sweet cat or a funny cat? That's a good question. I didn't ask that Or possibly a grumpy cat. Yeah, it could
2: be a grumpy cat, but that turns into a funny cat <laughs> uh, pretty much. And that's another area I think this research can go is there's work in positive psychology that does tease apart the differences between joy, happiness, and maybe more introspectful positive emotions like feeling tender or touched or moved because you witness acts of moral beauty. And, you know, a lot of these cat videos fall into the cute or funny, but they're actually videos of like cats helping a mom uh, with a baby's diaper or um, dogs helping their owners or helping other pets or when they you know, a cat adopts a little chicken (laughs) whose mom is gone, right? So there are lots of examples, actually, of animals acting in these magnanimous ways uh, that we see on these videos. And that might make you feel different than the sort of ha-ha-ha type video. So I think if we look at that, we might find differences as well.
1: So even the research about viral cat videos Mm -hmm. goes viral. (laughs) It's Um, very meta. (laughs) Yes, it is. Some of the results were on Twitter, I think Uberfax, mm-hmm. went to the site's 11.1 million followers, who then retweeted it nearly 1,000 times and favorited that tweet more than 1,400 times. Um, George Takei from Star Trek, who is a social media star in his own right, mm-hmm. linked the article, I think, to his 1.5 million followers. So your email, phone, and social media accounts must have been totally full, Um, Did you ever stop to be concerned that this had taken off in a way that you, A, hadn't planned and, B, maybe didn't like so much? Sure. There is always a little bit of that. But I think what... The
2: overarching thing was I couldn't control it (laughs) at that point. So I tried not to worry too much. But just when I did have the microphone or I did have a reporter on the phone to explain why this was important is because it's such a big part of our media diet. We probably watch spend more time watching cat videos than we do talking to our great aunt Thelma, right? You know, our grandparents are all sorts of people. So it's something we do a lot. And we have no idea how it affects us or how it interacts with the other type of media we're consuming. So by some estimates, people in Internet-connected areas spend more than 10 hours a day with media. That's a lot. And it's changing us in ways we don't even know yet. So I thought it was really important to investigate one of the most popular sub of YouTube and of other social media outlets, of course, and how it impacts us. So... If I could get someone uh, you know, on the phone and talk more about my broader field of media effects and um, how emotions impact our well-being and our health, then I felt like I had done my job as a researcher to kind of go out there and talk about social science and the way it works. so that that's been a great opportunity really, to talk about this area of the world. And you hear a lot about, you know, chemistry research and we're going to cure cancer. And so people know about that type of the sciences, but they don't know as much about social science. So, you know, I just try to take that angle of I'll explain it as best I can. And uh, if people don't get it right, I'll just keep on explaining it to the next person. And hopefully that is the um, news article or tweet that people share instead.
1: All media have been studied in this way, really, when you think about I mean, TV, especially Even still today, but certainly in the beginnings, people were fearful that Americans were just sitting there in front of this passive experience and watching some funny videos. (laughs) Uh, So it's just another another medium we can use to explore. Of course, this one is in front of us even at work all day, and the 10 hours we spend on some form of media, that certainly plays into that. But we should probably add that your other research topics also examine how people react to media messages, such as how we respond to information about tanning, which is an interesting area. Mm -hmm. And you've also looked at the effects of public service announcements and how they affect sharks and the perception of shark danger. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about these and how you gleaned information that maybe you took to the CAT video study.
2: Yeah, sure. So my overarching research agenda looks at our emotional responses to media and how that impacts our subsequent thoughts and behaviors. So with the Shark Week study, I teamed up uh, with a collaborator of mine, Susanna Evans, who's also on the faculty here at Indiana, And she had worked for an ocean conservation group that made these public service announcements trying to convince people that sharks are a vital part of the ecosystem. Um, Many shark species are endangered. And if they were to become extinct, it would have huge negative ramifications for both the oceans and people. (laughs) Well, a lot of us depend on the oceans uh, more than we realize. And they would place these public service announcements in the middle of Shark Week, which if people don't know, that's a a week long Discovery Channel event that is all sharks all the time. And a lot of the Shark Week programming is very violent. It's recreations of shark attacks where they're ripping people's limbs off and there's blood in the water and dark music. You know, it's sort of the um, after effect of Jaws popularity. (laughs) And it's a genre we call infotainment. There are some parts of Shark Week that are with scientists going down and just looking at sharks. But a lot of it is dramatized and focusing on the sharks biting humans when in reality, that very rarely happens. Way more people are, are killed by mosquito carrying viruses, uh, by all sorts of other animals besides sharks. So she was telling me about these PSAs. And as someone who studies emotional reactions to media, I thought, well, you know, when I watch Shark Week, which I do, uh, I enjoy it. Uh, it's scary. And I was thinking about, well, if you're watching this recreation of a bloody shark attack and you're scared at really a primal level, um, a way that you can't consciously stop. And then you see this PSA that says, "Oh, actually sharks are endangered. We should save sharks." Um, does that primal fear sort of override um, the overarching message of the PSA? Or does that PSA actually make you stop and say, "Whoa.
1: Who, whom do you believe, the TV show or the PSA?
2: Right. And it's more than who your, your brain believes, it's more who your gut and your heart <laughs> sort of stick with afterward. Is we find a lot of times in media research that your emotions are a better predictor than your cognitions or your thoughts of what you're actually going to do after the media exposure. So what we did was we edited different parts of Shark Week and we had people watch either a really violent <laughs> clip where there was all this blood and dramatic music. Or a moderate clip where uh, literally a shark just kind of nibbled on someone, but no (laughs) death, not really a lot of blood. Uh, And then we had a nonviolent clip or what we called sharks being sharks. And they're just swimming around eating fish, no humans. And people were randomly assigned to watch one of these three clips. And then afterwards, they were randomly assigned to either watch a commercial. We just happened to choose a Wendy's burger commercial um, or this PSA about saving the sharks. And what we found was the people who had watched the high violence shark week clip were the most scared, which makes sense. Um, And then that fear, being scared after watching those clips, really sort of dampened the effectiveness of the PSA it was actually a lot of what we predicted it did get people to think about it more it moved attitudes a little bit but when we asked about actual intentions would you sign up for this group's email list serve this conservation group's email list serve or would you donate or would you um, you know look for ways to support ocean conservation, the most scared people were less likely to (laughs) say they would take action. That is, again, sort of the primal part of our brain. Like, why do we need to save these things if they're killing us? So it goes back to this larger idea of our media diet and that we don't watch just one clip in isolation anymore. If you're watching traditional TV, there's going to be commercials in there that are embedded in a bigger emotional context. So a commercial embedded in Shark Week is going to be embedded in the sphere context or a commercial embedded in The Bachelor is going to have you know this romance love context. And if you want to understand how that commercial or PSA is going to impact people, then you need to take into account their surrounding
1: emotional state. What else is going on in that ten hours? Yeah.
2: yeah, totally. And the as you know, I talked about with the cat videos is I wanted to see, okay, this is one part of our media diet. What is its emotional context? So then we can do subsequent studies that sort of uh, relate to how watching different types of emotional content before or afterward would impact us. Uh, So that was the Shark Week study. And then a lot of my research does look at health communication. And so I've done some work on indoor tanning and why do people use tanning beds. And most cancer rates in the United States are actually going down. But skin cancer is one of the few that's going up. And it's highly, highly, highly correlated with indoor tanning. So why could this be? Well, we did some studies and we asked uh, young women, do you know that entertaining is associated with skin cancer? They all say yes. Everyone knows in their head this is wrong. But what we found was some of the main motivators of entertaining behavior were that it made them feel good. It had that emotional boost. I
1: think there are some studies about they're almost like an addiction kind mm-hmm. of. Some um, people do
2: get addicted to yes. intertani- to
1: all types of tanning, but mm-hmm. indoor tanning is very
2: controllable. Uh-huh. And so it, it has a different <laughs> context than does outdoor tanning where it could rain or it's cloudy. You can't um, you know, wear some of the things that people wear or don't wear in indoor tanning beds. So there was an emotional connection there. And it really has made a lot of researchers realize that you can't just keep This messaging tactic of telling people X, Y, or Z will cause cancer, that's not enough. You have to figure out how to – if the behavior that's cancer-related is pleasurable, how do you find a substitute pleasure? Maybe you could do a yoga intervention or some sort of other social thing where people get that – Boost that makes them feel better more than just telling people, no, 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 no. Oh, we tried that for decades, really, in public health (laughs) communication Mm -hmm. to be very paternalistic and tell people, this is bad. You must stop.
1: Smoking. does
2: Yeah, it really, it doesn't often work. And the people it's worked for, it's already worked for. (laughs) So you sort of reach this plateau effect. And uh, I think from a strategic messaging consideration, we need to use emotional messages that counteract the emotional Or keep in mind the emotional um, gratifications people get out of these potentially dangerous behaviors. Um, So, you know, recently, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist, tweeted that physics is easy. I can run these calculations. But um, sociology or social sciences are hard. Humans (laughs) are hard
1: (laughs) to predict uh, what they're going to do. And that was retweeted how many times? A lot. A lot.
2: But (laughs) actually, I keep that in mind a lot, too. Mm -hmm. And I think it it helps explain to me why I'm so interested in emotions. We don't know as much about them. Psychology research in general has been largely cognitive for most of the 1900s. Um, It was only at the end of that time, and now in the 2000s, people started to realize emotions are important, and the interplay between your emotions and your thoughts are really what shape how we act and what we do. So, yeah, I guess to finally circle back to your question, those other studies informed the caveat of research by thinking about how different types of media make us feel, but also that our emotions are such strong drivers of our behavior. So it sort of made sense to me with the cat videos that people are drawn to them because we know that this particular genre Cat videos is probably going to give us a positive emotional boost. You know, you're not going to click on a cat video and the cat's going to be spewing hate speech, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's not going to take a contrary political stand. Probably, um, if it does, it's probably not going to be as popular as the cute, funny <laughs> cat video. So it's a genre that's emotionally safe, so to say. We know what our brains, even before we consciously recognize it and know that if I click on this, it's probably going to be something that makes me feel good. So I think that's a large part of what drives the virality and the popularity of this
1: type of media. So then we can take the results of that and try to think of a way to create a PSA that makes us feel good so we don't go to the tanning booth. (laughs)
2: Yeah, exactly. And I do – I have to say that there's um, a national campaign called the Truth Campaign, and it's really active in getting youth to not smoke and to also be vocal against the tobacco industry. And they've actually really embraced cat videos recently. Uh, (laughs) They have a campaign called Catmageddon, and they use statistics that cat owners uh, who smoke – their cats are twice as likely to die from cancer, uh, and the same. They have the same stats. They have a dog-focused one, but Cat has been their hashtag, um, and it's been really popular. Uh, it's it's growing, and they they've gotten a lot of feedback and people joining the Truth Campaign based on the Cat advertising. So we are seeing cats used for social good. Cat videos, particularly, used for social good.
1: What can we see in the future? What do you think? Um perhaps your your next strategy or your next study might be and how will that affect maybe not exactly our um, media consumption because mm-hmm. that 10 hours I'll bet is probably pretty firm, but it might affect how we start to interpret the information we see in those 10 hours. Sure. So uh, this initial study
2: I did on cat videos was a survey. And most of what I do is actually experimental where like the shark week, study, I take different clips and purposely match them with other clips to try to figure out what are these combinations of media factors that influence our emotional states. So I'd like to do some experiments to specifically test out, you know, does a cat video that makes you uh, laugh hysterically affect you differently than a cat video that makes you go, oh, and feel moved or touched. And then I'm really, really interested in how it impacts what we watch next. So I've started initial stages of data collection on a study similar to that where people watch either something that's funny or something where um, pets are really helpful. And then also there's a third condition where humans are really helpful sort of tease apart. Is it just the emotional gratification that we get or is it, No, we are really attached to our pets. (laughs) And there's something deeper than just the acts portrayed that affect us. But then afterwards, having people watch um, a hard news video about um, immigration problems in Europe and seeing if the – watching the different types of videos before the hard news videos impacts their empathy um, for people, impacts their behavioral intentions, attitudes, et cetera. So sort of testing this positive emotion as a resource carryover effect um in an experimental setting. So that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm going with it. Uh it's I never intended to become a pet video researcher, <laughs> but because I study emotions and um media, it's it's a really useful stimulus material to get at these deeper questions about um media psychology
1: and the role of emotions. Professor Myrick, we thank you for sharing your research, which I think gives us a valid reason to spend just a few more minutes a day with little Bub. Thank you for being here. Thank you. We've been talking with Indiana University Media School researcher Jessica Galmirek, whose work examines media's psychological effects and the way we interpret and use media's messages. Thank you for being here today. My pleasure.
0: That was Gina Asher speaking with media researcher Jessica Galmirek. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. We'll be back in a moment. This week on Profiles, we're listening to conversations about the Internet and cats. Next, we'll hear a conversation with Mike Brodovsky. Brodovsky is a recording engineer and owner of Bloomington's Russian Recordings. He's also the owner of Internet cat sensation Lil Bub. WFIU's John Bailey spoke with Brodovsky in the WFIU studios.
3: Our guest today is Mike Brodowski, who for more than a decade has been known in indie rock circles as a studio engineer, producer, occasional musician, and owner of Bloomington's Russian Recording. He has also been party to the online feline phenomenon that is Lil Bub. Mike Brodovsky, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. I want to get into the music for a while, if we can talk about that. Sure. And let's start, let's start at the beginning Early impressions of music. What's the first music that you remember striking you? Well, a
4: little background. I was born to a Russian immigrant family, but conceived in Russia, so um, came over in my mom's belly. And they're also older, my parents. So, to give you a frame of reference, I'm 36 now, and my dad is 83. So, there's a cultural and generational. Uh, separation there. And so the music I grew up listening to in my house was mostly some jazz and classical. And um, for that reason, I was actually, everything like sort of pop culture or American culture, I was sort of seemed very foreign to me. And I was also nervous about it, bringing it into the house. I'm talking when I was like a kid. And so I really wanted to get into like, you know, rock and Popular music, and I was super uh, nervous to bring home my first like cassette tape and, and CDs. And I remember hiding them. And uh, I'm actually very proud of this fact. My first two CDs were Genesis "We Can't Dance," their '90s album, which is um, I don't think I've listened to since that first week I had it. And then um, Classic Queen, which is a good good
3: record. At what point did you discover you wanted to be a musician?
4: Well, pretty early on. So I started playing music uh, at the age of 10. Um, I played violin. A close family friend was in, was and still is in the Cleveland Orchestra. And so I was very lucky to have uh, such a an amazing instructor. And um, But that plateaued pretty quick, and then I switched to piano by age 12. And then I wanted to play the guitar. And I quit pretty much immediately on guitar for some reason and picked it up again on my own. Honestly, I I didn't so much like practicing and being an orchestra and all that, which I did do, and I enjoyed moderately, but then when I got to high school and discovered multi-track recording, um, that's when I got really into it. For me, it was the idea of being able to write something, record it, and then write something else to it, sort of like Legos, but with music. Um, I got... I just got super excited making that discovery. I got a four-track when I was about 14, and that's pretty much all I did in high school. And then I was like, man, I, I know I can't probably, I'm not good enough to make it as a musician, you know, to make a living, but I can meet halfway between science and music and I can record it. And so that's how I wound up at IU is I looked into programs and my violin teacher's son went to IU. He graduated, I think he was the first first person to graduate with a degree in jazz violin from IU. This was probably in the 90s. And he said they have a great recording program. And so that's how I wound up here.
3: How did that experience shape you in recording arts on the IU campus?
4: Well, it was an interesting time. Um, when I got into the program, David Pickett was the director, and uh, this this British guy. And he without any notice left after our first semester. And so the program was sort of in a disarray. Uh, Wayne Jackson, who was there at the time, and if you've been here for a while, you probably know Wayne. He uh, basically had to do it all himself, and he hired Professor Michael Stucker, who's uh, um, still there. And it was like a crazy time because they didn't know what was going on. And some would say that it was an a was not a great time to be in the program just because, you know, they were scrambling to get everything done and, you know. But for me, it was, like, the best time to be in the program because for that reason, you had access to all the stuff and there wasn't really anyone to tell you you can or can't do stuff, so I would just... I've been obsessed with recording since I was 14, so this was an opportunity to use all these awesome mics and I was a production assistant, so I had keys. And the reason I did that is so I could get in... I could, uh, you know, sneak some friends in there, set up some drums, and record with all these nice mics and all this nice equipment, and get away with it. You know, the only people there were like the janitors at the Mac. So I did that for four years, and it was an amazing experience. Yeah,
3: Steve Albini is a very distinctive producer, significant personality. He owns a legendary studio in Chicago called Electrical Audio, has for the last 20 years, and that's yielded a number of classic recordings by indie artists. He himself has worked with the Pixies and Nirvana and you know, n- name the rest, many, many luminaries. And you spent some time at his studio. Um, would you just describe what you recall of, of that facility? First of all?
4: Yeah. Um, electrical audio is, uh, an amazing recording studio. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to have interned there uh, under Steve. Um, and the way I got to that internship is actually through Conrad Strauss, who is the director of the audio program now. And I met Conrad on my way out. he I never even took a class from him, but I was a production assistant when he finally got hired on. And we actually hit it off really well, and he was like, I think you'd be perfect I'm going to try and get you an internship here with Steve because they've, they'd worked together in the past. Uh, I didn't realize how, what an amazing opportunity it was till I, till I really got there. And so, uh, the studio is very inspirational to me. It's what inspired me to open my own studio, Russian recording. And, um, also sort of what I took away from it the most was the DIY aspect of it. Uh, the whole studio was, um, built by Steve and his friends and, um, he really showed me that you can, you can do anything. There, there's nothing you can't do as long as you do your research, you're smart about it, and you plan carefully. And uh, that place is it's a marvel. It's amazing. And so um, that was what, what I really took away from there, is that you know after I'm done with this internship, I can go home and uh, build my
3: own place. Steve Albini has um, been said to dislike the term record producer. He he doesn't like credits on the sleeves or in, in liners. And when they're there, he prefers to be called recording engineer. Engineer versus producer. How important is that distinction to you? Uh, not as much to me.
4: Um, I think what he is really he has this sort of aversion to a specific type of producer. I don't, I don't think it's the word necessarily that is so bothersome as it is. There's a a kind of a producer that feels like he needs to tell the band how to play their music, um, how it should sound and make a bunch of decisions for them at the interest of the label or whatever, versus the interest of the band. Like I'm here to make sure your record is a hit record or even just I think this is cool, so why don't you do it this way? And I think, and you know, Steve's been around since for a long, making records for a long time. You know, roles change, and so I think a producer, what a good producer does, is ensures that the band makes the record they want to make, and that can be anything from making sure they get there on time to uh, you know figuring out what gets the best performance out of them. To they need a beer or do they need coffee? You know, things like that. All the way to, you know, making suggestions and saying, hey, that bass part sounds funny or maybe this bass part would sound cool through this. So the line between engineer and producer, especially anymore, is very blurred. So they're just words. But I think a very good engineer is someone who knows when to be a producer. And a good producer is someone who knows when to let the band do what they do best.
3: In 2003 not long at all out of college. You opened a recording studio in Bloomington. You're in your early 20s. You start Russian recording. What surprised you about the experience of going into this business for yourself?
4: Well, that's a good question. I didn't go into it as a business. I went into it uh, as I want to make records. I want to record albums. I want to immerse myself in making music I want to record my own music that's why that's why I went into it in the first place which is something I I haven't mentioned the whole reason I wanted to record is to record my own music uh, and play I play in bands and I loved the idea of being holed up in a studio and making a record and then I realized I could do this with friends or with bands that I loved the hardest part about owning a business when you don't the goal is not to make money but to make records is that you have to ask for money and it feels really it took me a long time to really feel good about asking people who don't have money to pay me money for something that I love doing. Cause it felt like this is what I want to do. And I'm going to ask people to pay me for it. It's like, I, I, especially when I first started, I felt like I should be paying them because I was so excited to be recording. Um, so the hardest part about, uh, and the biggest surprise was a, that I need to ask people for money and B no matter how much money you ask for as a recording engineer, you'll never make enough to, uh, to make ends meet. I mean, just like who my client, most of my clients are, are poor bands with no money, honestly, with a very slim chance of making money. I mean, the world of music throw like throwing money into it and making it into a business is such a difficult, difficult thing on many levels. But yeah, so basically, you know, uh, I have no money, and I'm asking people with no money to give me money so that they can make no money.
3: That's like a perfect recipe for uh, not making any money. You've been involved in your decade-plus with hundreds of artists, ranging from Magnolia Electric Company, Murder by Death. These are uh, the regional artists who have, who have acquired greater fame. To Tig Notaro, the stand-up comedian indie rockers like half Japanese and built to spill and of Montreal of, of all these recordings. When you think back, do you have any particular moments that jump out at you?
4: Um, I, it's not always, or maybe ever, you know, how popular or cool the band is for me. Um, well, for an example, it's hard, it's hard to say. First of all, when you're in the studio, you're working usually 12 to 14 hours a day and sometimes for, like, weeks. And so your brain, after making 500 records, sort of uh, doesn't hold on to all the, all the information anymore. And, um, but what jogs your memory is listening back to the records you've made. And um, so just recently, I got a new car with a new stereo system. And the first thing I do is check the stereo system and check my old mixes and my old recordings. And I haven't done that in a long time because I haven't bought a new car in a long time. And uh, I went through all my studio albums and I realized in the past five, six years, no one's putting, none of the bands I record put CDs out anymore. So I can't listen to any of the more recent recordings I've done, but I did have a bunch of CDs when CDs were a thing to put out. And so I saw this record, or the CD, uh, by the band Good Luck. It's their first CD. And that was a very important record for me. It's when I uh, met all those folks, and Matt from the band is one of my closest friends, and if we keep going and going about all this, he's the guy that wrote the music for the Little Bub album, which ties together both sides of my life quite nicely. Um, So I listened to this record, and I felt very proud at that moment. Um, It's a record I made... I texted him. I was like, "Man, was this ten years ago? It's like eight years ago," and I thought it sounded fantastic. It was recorded at my old studio, but more importantly, it was a it was a record that I remember. Like I had like flashes of of the session where we were in the studio out in Brown County, and we really worked hard at making a beautiful record on, on many levels, you know, not just like great songs, but really the flow of the record, how the record sounds and references uh, sonically and thematically through the songs. And like and uh, I just felt uh, very proud of what we'd done and also the friendship that came out of it. And so for me, like, that's what I love about recording and maybe became one of the biggest surprises is uh, that the kind of friendships you can make in the studio and relationships and they're very unique and sometimes they last a lifetime. And so that's one of my fonder memories.
3: You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm John Bailey. Our guest today is Russian recording owner uh, Mike Brodovsky. You've said that in 2012 you were at a low ebb in life, personally and professionally, and a rescue cat ended up coming to your rescue. How did you cross paths with the cat whom a lot of people know as Lil' Bub? Well, um,
4: Bub wasn't my first cat, so I have... The studio had four cats. I lived in the recording studio, and over the course of whatever it was, like the 10 years that I'd owned the studio at the time, I had accumulated four rescue cats. All but one were feral. So then um, they're all four of them are living at the studio. I love cats. Everyone knows this. And I sort of, all my cats are sort of misfit cats. One doesn't have a tail. The other weighs 22 pounds. The other one bites you a lot. And then um, I finally moved out of the recording studio and got my own tiny apartment. I was pretty relieved to have an apartment with no cats in it for once. Just, you know, cleanliness and... I spend most of my time at the studio anyways, a place to go to sleep where they don't all sit on top of me. And uh, sure enough, a week later, a friend sends me a text message with a photo of a cat, says, you have to meet this cat. She's perfect for you. Just come meet her. And that was Bub. And I saw the picture and I thought, man, I do not need another cat, but this cat looks phenomenal. She's... Uh, the most remarkable creature I've ever seen. She looked like Gizmo, you know. The first time you saw Gizmo as a kid, and I, I maybe it's just me, but I was like, I want Gizmo so bad. And Snuggles the bear. It's like Snuggles the bear was like age like one to six. I thought Snuggles was the cutest thing ever, and then it switched to Gizmo, um, and then it switched to Bub when I was in my thirties. And so then I went to meet Bub without the intention of adopting her, but it, I mean, it was like an instant connection with this cat, and she didn't even seem like a cat. I mean, she was so unique and strange and full of magic and all the things that um, are what made her famous were very obvious from the beginning. I took her home, and, um, yeah, that's that's how we met.
3: Pictures of Lil' Bub ended up on a Tumblr and then ended up uh, going viral on Reddit and then elsewhere on social media. Based on the experience you've had, how easy do you think it would be for somebody to try to replicate this phenomenon could somebody manufacture uh, a viral phenomenon such as this
4: uh it's i think it's absolutely impossible to recreate something like this and i i didn't create something like this you know that's the thing is to this day i'm not really uh sure how all the things came together you know um in some ways it's surreal, and in, in in other ways, obviously, it's just very real. It's just what happened, you know. Most viral content is accidental, um, and I think that's part of what makes it so uh, shareable and so exciting to people, even after so many years of viral content. Um, so, yeah, uh, many people have tried, and, and sort of in the aftermath of Bub getting famous, there have been some other cats that have gone viral, and now there's like a whole slew of people trying... Um, to make their cats famous, which, you know, I get asked to do, like, a lot of interviews, like, can you tell us, give, give our fans some tips on how to make their cat famous? And then, I mean, I usually turn those down unless they're okay with me telling people that you shouldn't make your cat famous.
3: For those who haven't seen Little Bob, how would you describe her appeal? Um,
4: well, she, if you can picture a small creature resembling, loosely resembling a cat... Um, but, uh, putting forth such powerful energy, such powerful, positive energy that it moves you, uh, oftentimes it moves people to tears. Um, I think that's a, the, probably the best description for the radio because you can't see her. And I think that a lot of people truly feel that way, despite the fact that her appearance is absolutely one of a kind, um, and, uh, certainly very unique. I do think that there's something more to her beyond that and which sort of explains the unexplainable, which is why so many people are so thoroughly enamored with her beyond the idea of her just being a famous cat or being unique looking. Um, But to those of you who have never seen her and are curious, uh, she's very small. She's long and small and uh, she weighs four and a half pounds. She... um, her teeth never grew in, and she has an underdeveloped lower jaw, so her tongue pokes out all the time. Her eyes are ab- abnormally large for her skull. They're uh, like twice as big as they should be for her size. And um, she has very short limbs, and she walks funny because she has a very rare bone condition called osteopetrosis. And through, despite all of this, she is um, full of love and light and uh, is very healthy and I think that's part of what makes her so special is that she's kind of a, an inspiration that despite all these uh, genetic anomalies and obstacles that she um, is able to, you know, make records, write books, be in movies. And,
3: and uh, yeah, it gives people hope, you know. There has been merchandise. There's been plush. There's been an album with your music and Bub's vocals. Uh, there's been a book, an online talk show, a special on Animal Planet with Amy Sedaris and Andrew W.K., you've had a number of creative and marketing opportunities dropped in your lap. When one shows up, what compels you to say no?
4: Well, I have, um, you know, it always sounds funny for it to sound like a marketing opportunity. It, It goes the same with, like, when I was talking about the recording studio, like the reason... I started, the studio was never to make money, it was to make records. And the same thing with Bub is uh, when she got famous, I didn't see it as an opportunity to make money, but I I saw it as an opportunity to to do fun, creative projects that, like you said, sort of started falling into my lap. But my rule from the beginning was uh, when these opportunities come up, especially from bigger companies like Penguin Books or Animal Planet, they're seeing dollar signs. I'm seeing an opportunity to do something cool, and I don't want their dollar signs to interfere with you know, what my cat's all about and what I want to do. So from the beginning, when I started getting these opportunities, I just made a strict rule. I have full creative control. I have final say. I get to work with my friends, whoever I want. Uh, There's a lot of talented folks in Bloomington, and I'm very lucky to be friends with some of them. So it was an opportunity to sort of do cool stuff with my buddies and have a lot of people see it and hopefully have a lot of people like it. And uh, I fully expected a lot of interested parties to say no to me because I had such bold, um, prerequisites of working on a project, but they were totally cool with it. So in most cases, but based on that, beyond that, uh, some prerequisites to saying no are, it, you know, there has to be a charitable aspect involved. Um, a big part of what we do is spreading awareness for homeless pets and special needs pets and also raising money for them. So I always want there to be anything that, uh, has Bub's face on it is I would say benefits animals in need. A lot of the people that would reach out to us were genuine Bub fans. And to me, that's important. Like, we love Bub. We love everything that you're doing. We want to do this with you. Then it's like, well, yeah, this could work. But a lot of times, you know, they're just, again, it's like dollar signs and they don't know anything about her. In fact, they usually think she's a boy. And for me, that's the biggest red flag. Like, we love him. We would love him to do this. That's to me, that's a sign that they didn't even bother checking
3: her gender, you know, so. What's the most difficult thing for you personally about being tied to Lil' Bub?
4: Well, there's a a lot there um, as far as difficulties go. I think some people don't realize how much work it is and some people, especially people who don't read the story, will quickly um, jump to the conclusion that um, I'm exploiting my cat for financial gain or whatever. And um, I'm guilty of the same thing, I'm sure, in other situations. And This is a human, like, response of, like, attacking someone for something without doing the research, you know? And anything that gets popular on the Internet especially is going to, you know, you're going to have your haters, as they say. Um, But, you know, I've learned to deal with that pretty quickly. The other thing is um, that we're just a a family with a cat that we care for very much. We have other pets and we have a kid. And people expect a post or a video or a photo from Bub every single day. And... I like everything to be organic and natural, and I'm basically sharing my life with millions of people. And that, again, I've gotten used to it a bit, and my wife has too after she uh, found herself in this world as well. But that's definitely a difficult part, you know, is um, people know about your stuff, and people make judgments about your life. And, you know, when we introduced our son Roscoe, and we were baffled by, like, the horrible things people will say about babies and cats and all this stuff. And uh, so, you know, there's, there's a lot to it and, and people, some people think that they're better pet owners than you and all that kind of stuff. So those kind of things are always hard to deal with. Um, You know, we get, I get thousands of messages every day, most of them good. And some of them are, you know, are difficult. It ranges from people saying, Hey, you need to take your cat to the vet. It's tongue is sticking out. And it's like, Oh my God. to, uh, really heartfelt messages of people. Uh, once I got a message from a lady who said, I'm so glad you posted that video. And it, it just randomly came up in my feed. I actually had a bottle of pills next to me and I was about to kill myself. And you would not believe how many messages I get like that, where people message me and say that Bub has literally saved their life. And I'm not talking like five to 10 or 10 to 50. I mean, over the past four years, I've received hundreds of messages like this. So there's a lot to it. There's a lot of emotional stuff that goes into it. It's a lot of work. So uh, the Bub thing takes up eh, about 80 to 90 hours a week of my time. Um, and i am also got a family and I've got the studio. So it's there's a lot there.
3: In the last four years, how has Lil Bub changed you?
4: Well, um, I think in almost every every way. Well, no, not in some ways I'm very much the same person, but I think... The biggest change I've experienced is this avenue of um, of sort of giving and charity, which obviously I've always been an empathetic person. So, you know, I've always rescued cats. I've always adopted cats. I've always been a relatively nice guy. But my time was spent recording bands and playing in bands. And um, it's not that I didn't want to do nice things. That just never presented itself in my life, and I never really volunteered doing much stuff. But then when this whole Bub thing came about and I thought about, you know, what is this about? What would Bub want out of this and what can people take away from this? I realized that the animal charity thing and the welfare thing was very important to me because I looked around and said, hey, all my kids are rescues. And then all the comments we were getting, I realized how many people don't know why it's important to adopt, why it's important to spay and neuter your pet, what goes into taking care of a special needs pet. Like these things to me are common sense and to others, it's, they just really don't know. And I saw this as an opportunity to, to spread awareness about it. And you know, one thing led to another and Bob got real famous. And then we were able to start a real fund for special needs pets. And then I found myself like doing all this animal advocacy work. And Earlier this year I was asked to go to Toronto to speak at the National Canadian Humane Association as a keynote speaker and that's when I was like man this is I never thought I'd be a keynote speaker of anything let alone at a animal rights annual animal rights conference and so yeah that's that's probably like the biggest thing I've learned from all this but I've learned man I've learned so much from social media to, like you say, marketing and to um, negotiating contracts and to traveling with a pet and photography. I take all the photos, um, producing videos, making calendars. It's like th- there's so much to it. And when I sort of tell someone about it and I realize how much I've learned, it's, it kind of blows my mind. Yeah.
3: I've been speaking today with Mike Brodowski. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. This is John Bailey for Profiles.
0: Copies of this, or other programs, can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website WFIU.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.